Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the U.S. tax treatment of executive stock options. In December of 2021, Elon Musk was the focus of substantial media coverage related to the exercise of some of his Tesla stock options. He also got into a bit of a Twitter war with Senator Elizabeth Warren shortly after Time Magazine named him Person of the Year, with Warren calling for tax reform to ensure Musk would, quote, actually pay taxes and stop freeloading off everyone else. In today's episode, we discuss the tax treatment of executive stock options for both the employee and the corporation. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. I am excited because today we get to talk about one of my favorite things, Mm -hmm. stock options. Okay, so I've known this about you for a long time, that you love to nerd out over stock compensation. Why? Why are you so fascinated? I will admit, when it comes to this, I am probably a little bit of a mystery wrapped inside of an enigma. So what gives? Uh, You also know that I am a sucker for boring and complicated, we'll call it crap. True that. uh, That nobody else really wants to think about. Seconded. So I was a practicing accountant back in 2006 when the rules around accounting for stock compensation changed. And a lot of the people who I worked with at the time, just to be blunt, hated it and wanted to ignore it because it was somewhat complicated, especially the tax part of it. So I thought, yeah, this is a good place for me to dig in and learn everything I can and hope that one day I get to tell someone senior to me that they're doing it all wrong. <laughs> okay. That, that, yes, I've also known that about you for a very long time. So did that day ever come? It did. It came twice, in fact. Very nice. Well, as our colleague and friend Richard Sansing of at Dartmouth would say, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man, or woman in this case, is king. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we are going to try, try to accomplish three things today. First, we are going to explain at a high level what stock options are and how they work. Second, we're going to explain the tax treatment to both the employee and the employer of stock options. And C, because now I can't remember if I said (laughs) one or two or A or first, we're going to explain why some people are adamant that stock options are a tax loophole. So Lisa, get us started. What are stock options and how do they work? Sure. So strictly speaking, a stock option grants the holder of the option the right, but not the obligation, to purchase a share of a specific stock at a predetermined price, which we're going to call the strike price, within some future window of time, meaning the option eventually expires. For the purposes of our discussion today, stock options are really nothing more than just another form of employee compensation, Mm -hmm. right? Public Mm -hmm. corporations need employees, both executives and rank and file employees. They need them to, you know, do do their jobs, Mm -hmm. which means they need to compensate them. And corporations can choose to compensate their workers with fixed or guaranteed compensation like a salary or with incentive compensation like bonuses for meeting certain objectives. You only receive it if your performance exceeds some absolute or relative benchmark. And that's the whole point. It incentivizes workers, including executives, to work harder to achieve those benchmarks. And incentive compensation comes in two 
flavors, two varieties, you can incentivize somebody with additional cash, or you can incentivize them with equity, which we also refer to as stock. At the end of the day, we want managers to work for the best interest of the shareholders. But when firms link incentive compensation to performance metrics that capture those interests with noise, or that can be directly manipulated by managers, that too, if we tie incentive compensation to a measure that is subpar, then we might get subpar performance. So if there only were a way to compensate managers using a performance benchmark that captures shareholders' interests. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? So amazing. But wait, that's what stock options do. The only way that a executive or a worker is going to benefit from an option is if the stock price goes up and all else equal, that should make shareholders happy. Right. Okay, so let's tie all of this discussion back to our favorite Texas transplant, Elon Musk. So during late 2021, I think he started in November, he exercised almost 23 million stock options. These options were granted to him in August of 2012, when Tesla's stock was trading at just about $6 a share. And as is the case with most public companies, on the day that they give you a stock option, they use that trading price as the strike price. Right. At Tesla, those options have a 10-year window. So they were going to expire in August of 2022, at which point, if Mr. Musk hadn't exercised them, he would basically forego any benefit. Turns out that Tesla's average stock price during November and December of 2021 was $1,069. Little, little bit more than $6. Right, a little bit more. So basically, Mr. Musk was able to get shares worth over $24 billion in total for a purchase price of just over $142 million. That is one heck of a bargain. That is one heck of a bargain, yes. In fact, that difference between the share value when the option is exercised and the purchase price is called the bargain element. That's considered the amount of the employee's compensation, right? That's the benefit that they get for being able to exercise at $6 and then get a share of stock worth over 1000 What we've just described is a non-qualified stock option, and they're called that because they lack certain features or qualifications of other options that garner significant tax benefits to the employee. This other type is the qualified option, also called statutory or incentive stock options. And that's the type that many of our listeners who are not founders or CEOs, but rather rank and file employees, those are the ones that you're getting. And that will have to be the topic of a different episode. And it's not just that there are different types of options. There are different types of equity compensation that aren't options at all. One really popular form is something that we refer to as restricted stock units or restricted stock awards. When I teach this to my students, I say the shortcut is to think of restricted stock like an option, but it has a zero strike price. I like that. Simple, right? There are also things called stock appreciation rights that tend to be a little bit less common. But stock options, despite having all of these different types of stock-based compensation, stock options always seem to get the bad rap from politicians and the media. Why do you think that is? Hmm. Jealousy? That they don't, <laughs> yep. they don't get stock options? I don't know. I, I, it could be because options were the primary form of stock compensation during the tech boom. Um, it could be because they think options create excessive risk-taking. I also think a lot of people don't realize that there are so many different types of stock-based compensation. And because these different types all share some similar features yet are, are very different from each other, it could just be that 
politicians in the media say stock options when they mean stock compensation, when they mean any of these other types. I think that's a fair point. It's kind of a misnomer. We're using a Kleenex. We're calling all tissues Kleenex. Right. Okay. Um, But if we're hoping to be precise, which I think you and I like to do. We like to. Then we shouldn't ignore the differences. Um, We certainly shouldn't ignore restricted stock. So for example, unlike options, restricted stock always has some value to -hmm. the executive unless the company completely goes bankrupt. So even though we call it incentive compensation, and it is, it's always going to offer some guarantee of some amount of compensation, again, absent bankruptcy. Right. And since that 2006 accounting change that I mentioned, restricted stock has actually become the dominant form of executive compensation. And it's not like restricted stock offers some pittance relative to options. So one example, Tim Cook realized Never heard over, of him. <laughs> realized over seven hundred fifty million in value when his restricted stock in Apple vested in twenty twenty one. Only seven hundred fifty million. That's it. I don't get out of bed for less than a billion. So now we know what employee stock options are. And we would all like to have some, please. We would. But let's talk taxes. Let's. First thing to know, the Internal Revenue Code taxes all of your gross income, including most forms of compensation that you get from your employer. So back to the very beginning of the episode, workers get taxed on both fixed and incentive compensation, which means when we're talking about non-qualified options, restricted stock, workers get taxed on the bargain element of any stock compensation. Wait a second. Uh, Senator Warren said Elon Musk was a freeloader. And he very well may be. I've never met him. I don't know the man. (laughs) Fair enough. But I can tell you that he does pay tax on his option exercises. He does. And we know that. We know that he does because there are publicly available documents that Tesla has to file with the SEC. And those documents tell us that he pays tax. Mr. Musk had another large windfall back in 2016 when he exercised over $1.3 billion worth of options. And according to Tesla's proxy statement, helpfully, in bold letters and underlined for dramatic effect. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> Mr. Musk had to sell some of those shares immediately after exercise to pay about $600 million in income taxes. And that amount tracks. The top individual income tax rate in 2016 was about 40%, and Mr. Musk would have owed up to 12.3% in California at the time, too. So $600 million of tax on $1.3 billion uh, passes the smell test. It does. And I don't, everyone has different perspectives on things. I would not consider $600 million to be no tax. That's, that's just me, but different, different strokes. To recap, first thing to know, when we're talking about non-qualified options, restricted stock, employees, executives, whoever they are, have to recognize that bargain element as a component of their gross taxable income. Second thing to know, The Internal Revenue Code allows businesses to deduct all of their ordinary and necessary business expenses as long as they are reasonable in amount. So I think, I hope, that we can all agree that compensating your employees should qualify as an ordinary and necessary business expense. Yes, are you on board with that? I'm on board. Okay, so then the next question we have to answer is, is 1.3 billion or 24 billion of CEO mm. compensation, quote, reasonable in amount? 
And that depends on who you ask and when. So prior to 1993, there were no statutory guidelines as to what reasonable executive compensation was, reasonable in quoting marks. In 1993, Congress decided that $1 million sounded like a nice, round, reasonable number, so it capped business deductions for executive comp at $1 million per executive per year. Except... Except it carved out a big, juicy exception for compensation that was, quote, performance-based, like stock options. So back in 2016, Tesla was able to deduct all $1.3 billion of the compensation that Mr. Musk included in his gross income. And I love this. It has a really nice symmetry to it. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk is paying tax on $1.3 billion of income. Tesla is taking a deduction for $1.3 billion. Everybody's happy. I like that. I like the symmetry, too. And it gets even better. In 2016, the top individual rate, like we said, was about 40%. And the top corporate rate was 35%. So it turns out the U.S. government took a 5% net rake for Mr. Musk alone. That would have been about $65 million. So everything was peaceful in U.S. tax land. Executives were paying tax on their windfalls. Corporations were getting deductions. And the U.S. government was getting tax revenue on each option exercise. And they all lived happily ever after. Mm, it's a nice story. Except none of that actually happened. What? As part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, Congress decided to do away with the deductibility exception for performance-based compensation. Rude. Right? Their reasoning was that stock-based compensation had grown too large because of its tax-favored status relative to salary. So now, as of beginning of 2018, corporations can deduct only $1 million of total compensation for each executive each year. Fixed pay, incentive pay, cash options. Restricted stock does not matter. One million in total across all the different types of comp. Now, it may take a few years for companies to feel all of that pain because of a complex transition rule, but eventually the deduction for all executive compensation will be limited to one million dollars. Oh, and the TCJA also lowered their corporate rate to 21 percent. All right, so let's recap. Make sure we are all on the same page. Good idea. 2021, Elon Musk recognizes something like $24 billion of ordinary income from his stock option exercises and faces a top tax rate of 37%, which means he's likely paying almost $9 billion in U.S. federal tax. Check. And to put that into perspective, total individual income tax collections from all individuals in the U.S. in 2020 were $1.9 trillion. So $9 billion is a substantial amount of tax for one human being to pay. Non-trivial. Okay. Best case scenario, from Tesla's perspective, mm -hmm. is that they get a corresponding tax benefit of about $5 billion because of that lower 21% corporate tax rate. Mm -hmm. Worst case scenario, from Tesla's perspective, is that they get a paltry $210,000 tax benefit if the entire amount of Mr. Musk's compensation falls under that new $1 million compensation deductibility limit. Ouch. So the U.S. government is getting somewhere between $4 billion and almost $9 billion of tax revenue from this deal. Yepers. Okay, so what is this, quote, loophole that Senator Warren once closed? Yes, right, the loophole. Yes, it is the stock option loophole. Got that, but I'm asking you, what is the stock option loophole? Yes, 
that is the loophole related to stock options. You are very convincing right now. <laughs> yes. Okay. So you have no idea, right? Nope. None. And yes. speculate for me. So in my opinion, should employees be taxed on all compensation, including stock options? Yes. Should corporations get at least some deduction for all of that compensation, even stock options? Yes. Do I think $1 million is a reasonable amount of that deduction? Honestly, I'd say it's probably unreasonably low given the market rate of compensation a large publicly traded company has to pay to hire and retain a CEO, and that would suggest the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act already unreasonably limits the amount of deduction a corporation should get to claim. So I don't really know what else tax policy can do here, at least on the employer side. Okay, I don't either, so you're making me feel better. So if we both agree that it's not obvious what the loophole there is to close on the employer's side of the transaction, mm -hmm. then there must be some loophole that we need to close on the employee's side of the transaction. Yes. And again, speculating, pontificating here, I guess it could relate to the idea that wealthy individuals like Musk can borrow against the shares they receive upon exercising their options. Whereas maybe a rank and file worker has to immediately sell those shares to, you know, put food on the table, pay their bills. Really wealthy people have those shares. They can hold on to them. They can borrow against them. And they can just watch as the value of those shares grows more and more over time. And if they don't sell them, then they're never actually paying the taxes on those gains. Well, yeah, there are a number of people who don't like that and who want to tax those borrowed dollars as if they were realized gains. Yes, like Senator Wyden's billionaire income tax that we've talked about or Senator Warren's wealth tax. And we are back again to Senator Warren. It all comes back to her. And her mug full of billionaire tears. Yes. Okay, but what I just said, which was really trying hard to identify a loophole here, what I, so I'm disagreeing with myself now, which is also very on point. Yes, it tracks. It seems like her issue is not about stock options or how we tax stock options, but rather the fact that stock options can turn into shares. Yes. And if those shares appreciate mm -hmm. and the wealthy hold on to those shares, that they wind up racking up a decent amount of unrealized gains. And we don't currently tax those unrealized gains, some of which started as babies with stock option exercises or restricted stock vesting. See, and 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 here is where it's almost like it almost sounds like you're expecting a politician to A, know what they're talking about. And B, make a sound, logical argument instead of just pointing a figure at the rich as the cause of all of our problems. I learned it by watching you. <laughs> I mean, right? You're the one who's always dreaming big and asking for a logical tax policy grounded in uh, logic. You should never follow my lead on things. You should have learned that by now. Wise. Now it's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of stock options. All right. I'm going to start with the good. So if you believe academic research, and you should, and there's a lot of it on this point, options can be a very effective form of incentive compensation and a useful tool for aligning managers' interests with those of shareholders. They also allow startups to compensate employees without cash in a way that fosters innovation and risk-taking. 
And one thing that I have found not everybody understands is it's not just executives who get stock options. A lot of companies give options to their rank and file workers too. And the reason companies do it is because it it's good from an incentive perspective. Mm-hmm. So our PhD cohort member, Laura Little One Wang, finds that more optimistic individuals are more likely to choose compensation like stock options that is tied to future stock price. And that once they do so, those individuals do better at challenging problem-solving tasks. Oh, flashback to the PhD bullpen with yes. little, little one in token. Hugs. Hugs. I guess I need to do the heavy lifting here on the bad. Thank you. One bad thing about stock-based compensation in general is that the accounting is complex and the related disclosures are clear as mud. And that can make it very challenging for an investor to really appreciate the true value of stock compensation that executives are getting. So the thing is, companies have to estimate the value of the stock option on the day that they grant it. They estimate it one time and then they leave it alone. And that's a rule that's specific to the U.S. Other accounting standards require companies to constantly update that estimate. Mm. But the U.S., you try once, you make a big mistake, no big deal, we're not going to hold your feet to the fire. And what's more, it's not only that companies are making errors, but those errors tend to be systematically biased downwards. And so what that means is that oftentimes the realized value of those option exercises far, far exceeds the estimate that was disclosed to shareholders way back on the grant date. And now I think I do have to pick on tax policy or at least tax policy makers, because it seems like the changes to the tax treatment of executive compensation that we've seen of late are motivated by this desire to use the tax code to fix income inequality in the U.S. And I'm not sure it's going to work. I, I hate to say that say it when there are limits to the tax code, but there are limits to what tax policy can fix and control. So I agree with you. You and I have worked with Charlie McClure out of the University of Chicago, and we basically studied what happened after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act took away basically 100% of the tax benefit of stock comp to executives. And we find very, very little, very little evidence that companies change their pay practices at all in response to this major tax policy change. So what we have concluded is that these other reasons to use stock compensation that we've talked about are just way too powerful and they wind up swamping any tax benefits. Yes, but it's become such a popular or politically uh, amenable talking point. Tax the rich. Wait, executives are rich. Tax executives. Tax executive compensation. Well, guess what? We are. We do. Already, we tax it. It's happening right now. Yes, at least in the case of non-qualified options and restricted stock, it's happening. So I'm not sure what else there is to be done. But as a start, we could not say anymore that executives don't pay tax on stock options. That seems like a good place to start. Got to start somewhere. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa Beesburn. And I'm Bridget Stomper. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Mac.